0: Hi, my name is Alex Johnson, and this is the FinTech Takes podcast, the place where I workshop new takes, talk with FinTech friends, both old and new, and explore the less trodden spaces in our well-trodden industry. Hello. And welcome back to Fintech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I am the creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter. And joining me, as always, is my friend and the publisher of Fintech Business Weekly, Jason Mikula. Jason, how are you? I am doing pretty well. It's solidly
1: fall here in the Netherlands, which I have to say I'm pretty happy about. Uh, coming back here after about 10 days in Guadalajara, where it
0: was uh, quite hot, I'm pretty happy to be home. Yeah, I would imagine that's a bit of a, uh, I mean, not only a a changeover from a a time zone perspective, but also like everything weather-related is just like opposite, I would imagine.
1: Weather-related, food-related, language-related, just yes, opposites all around.
0: Well, if you don't um, follow Jason on Twitter, I don't know why you wouldn't, but uh, he does a uh, wonderful food not fintech hashtag for uh whenever he visits mexico and is eating delicious food so um if you need recommendations or are just sort of looking for an instagram like uh sort of fomo experience of following along every time he posts a meal i get really jealous
1: yeah it's it's my uh cholesterol is probably worse for, for the wear but the chiliquiles were worth it
0: <laughs> well, you know what? Um, if you avoid these things, you won't live longer. It'll just feel like it. So um, well, well, well done on that front. Um, Thank you. Okay. Well, we're going to, we're going to jump in. Um, and as always, we're going to bounce around a few topics that we saw from the the last month or so. Before we do that, I will say that uh, we are actually approaching at the end of this month, uh, Jason and I's one year anniversary for doing this podcast, uh, which we started Uh, by doing live from Money 2020 last year. And uh, we are doing a reunion show live from Money 2020 this year. So we are on the schedule. We will be recording live. If you're at the event, you can actually come sit and watch us podcast live, which I think would be kind of a strange experience, but maybe it's something you'd be interested in. So um, please do that if you're around. And certainly, Jason and I will be very busy and running around at Money 2020 and would love to see you in person as well
1: absolutely uh so yeah definitely say hi if you see us uh and with that should we get into the stories yeah you go first all right I think uh any any longtime listeners or readers will know that both Alex and I share a very special fascination uh with a neobank slash lender called money lion which last week uh, a the cfpb brought a lawsuit against money lion uh that hinged on two key areas. Uh, Number one was UDAP in the structure and practices of its membership program, specifically that MoneyLion advertised to users that they could quit the membership program for any reason, including specifying this in the user's contracts. But in reality, users were unable to exit the program, which by the way, costs $19.99 per month, until they had repaid their loans in full. And in many cases, even if they had repaid their loans, if they had any previously outstanding membership fees, uh, Moneyline would not let them end the membership, meaning they continued to accrue new fees. The sort of second bucket of allegations in the CFPB suit center around the Military Lending Act, the MLA, uh, which is a Somewhat like esoteric piece of legislation designed to protect members of the military from certain aspects of consumer credit, consumer finance. CFPB found that the interest and membership fee combined exceeded the thirty-six percent, quote-unquote, military APR cap, which is a slightly different way of calculating APR, which we'll probably get into that is uh, a provision of the mla uh, as well as a couple of other components around requiring mandatory arbitration uh, and certain disclosures that are required by the mla now alex i'm i'm sure that you saw this case the uh, the suit made some interesting reading any initial reactions to the allegations that the cfpb detailed
0: my takeaway was that uh, this was utterly unsurprising. And you referenced the fact that you and I are both mildly obsessed with this company and have been for a while. I mean, I think anyone who's been paying attention to this company will not be terribly surprised by this, right? I think you you actually outlined uh, in an, a newsletter a while ago that Lion was facing a number of different fronts from a regulatory scrutiny perspective, both. On it was the federal, like a year ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So it's like, I mean, that's, they had to disclose that uh, we'd known this is coming on a number of different fronts. There's probably more to come beyond just what the CFPB has sort of filed suit around. But no, I mean, I wasn't surprised at all. And I think even if you didn't know that the regulatory actions were sort of in progress, which obviously we did, again, even if you didn't know that, I wouldn't have been surprised, right? And and you and I have talked about this before. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about fintech is there's fintech as a product and there's fintech as marketing. And mm-hmm. learning to separate the two is really, really important because from a marketing perspective, any consumer-facing fintech company is going to present their products in a certain light, right? They're going to say, banks are bad. They charge high fees. We're better. We do these things. They'll have a website that's nicely designed. They'll have a beautiful mobile app. They'll have fun logos, some of which I've ranked in my newsletter in the past. Actually, Moneyline's <laughs> logo did pretty well strictly on a aesthetics perspective, not having anything to do with the company. And so, like on on a marketing front, I think a lot of times you can go, "Oh wow, that looks like an interesting company." But if you sort of divorce the marketing from the product and you just look at the product and like, what are the terms? How does the product work? It can become fairly obvious that like, this is not a product that's going to disrupt banks. This isn't even a product that's going to really disrupt other like neobanks in the space. Like this is a product that's aimed at disrupting other subprime lenders, right? And other banks that sort of are somewhat predatory in the way they work with low-income consumers. And I think in this particular case, you know, whenever I look at kind of Money Line's lineup of products, you know, I see a very, very expensive consumer unfriendly product design. And you reference the, the $19.99 a month uh, that you have to pay uh, to be a part of this uh, sort of membership program. I was going back and looking at a a Twitter thread that I put out about a year ago, actually talking about MoneyLion's credit builder loan. And there was actually a a page on their website. I'm not sure if it's still there or if they've changed it. But at the time, it was a page talking about why you should keep your membership active uh, and continue paying $19.99 a month, even after you pay off your loan. And the reasons for that were that you could get access to credit monitoring tools, uh, which for $19.99 a month, you would probably be better served spending your money elsewhere to do that. The ability to get access to more credit builder loans in the future, which I don't really understand why you have to pay $9.99 a month for that. 0% APR Instacash, and we haven't even talked about their Instacash product uh, yet, though it may come up. And then my favorite one at the end was Uh, a monthly lion's share loyalty program payout of up to $19.99 per month. So in reality, what you would pay for, for, you know, $19.99 a month was the ability to get credit monitoring services and the ability perhaps to get a reward credit of up to $19.99 a month. So just like looking at the product and its product design it never made a ton of sense, and I guess to go back to your original question, no, I wasn't terribly surprised by this.
1: There was uh, some detail in the case that that I actually, admittedly, did not know, which was there was a predecessor version of this product that charged, believe it or not, more. <clears throat> it charged twenty nine ninety nine per month oh. to access a loan of up to, I think it was up to five hundred dollars at. 5.99%. And so putting my cynical hat on and I think that Moneyline has earned it what it really looks like they've done is they've attempted to cobble together some you know features and benefits that they could defend and say this is a membership program and mm-hmm. what you're paying for are these attributes like the credit monitoring, although there's this site I've heard of called Credit Karma that does a pretty good job of that for free. So Money Lines tried to cobble together a number of features so that they could make a defensible claim that this was a true membership program and the loan was just one component of that program. Why would they do that? Because if it's a membership fee, a bona fide, bona fide? I never know how to say that, membership <laughs> fee, it is not considered a finance charge. Under Tila Reg Z for typical consumers. And Mm. that seems to be why the CFPB brought this case as a Military Lending Act violation, because the MLA is very clear that participation fees explicitly are included in the military APR calculation. And the CFPB has jurisdiction to enforce that 36% APR cap. In regular world, you know, non-military lending act world, the mm-hmm. CFPB doesn't actually specifically have a cause of action based on interest rate alone. That would be a state usury issue. And so it's an easier case for the CFPB to bring under the MLA versus saying an average consumer was harmed by the structure of this program. There is a case you could make there, but it would be Harder because you'd have to argue, you know, this entire membership thing is a ruse and it's just disguising what is in fact a finance charge. So really, that really feels like what Moneyline was probably doing here. But you know, the you know the nature of bringing a case, you want to marshal your best evidence and present it in the most straightforward way possible. And that seems to be what the CFPB did here by making this argument under the MLA. You know, the UDAP component about basically making it very difficult for users to cancel their membership that was for all consumers. That was not specific to those protected by the MLA, which is active duty service members and their dependents.
0: Well, and you had a funny uh, analogy in your newsletter. Can you share that one that you used for the the UTEP, uh, portion of it?
1: Uh, it? It's you know I feel like you had to be alive at a very specific time, I guess, <laughs> in like the pre the pre streaming you know universe. But I think many of the the listeners probably remember Columbia House, and I guess at some point Columbia House and BMG, which both kind of ran similar music subscription mail order music subscription clubs, I think they merged. But basically like the most notorious example i can remember of you know luring folks into signing up for something that they may not have understood had a you know a recurring component that if you did not opt out of uh, negative option billing is sort of like the technical term that mm-hmm. you would just keep receiving cds or maybe vinyl or eight tracks or tapes depending on how old you are in the mail until you reached them to cancel it uh, and so the sort of joke or comparison is that you know Money Lion made it very difficult, uh, if, again, if not impossible, if you had a loan outstanding to get mm-hmm. out of this very expensive membership program.
0: Hey, going back to the point you were making before, I mean, the it's a really good observation about the way the CFPB approached this particular case and why sort of going through the the Military uh, Lending Act was a, a good way to sort of get at that that core problem. But I think if you take a step back and you just look at this overall product structure, it absolutely makes no sense, right? Like no one is going (laughs) to pay $19.99 a month to get access to take out a loan of let's say $1,000 that you have to pay interest on. And that by the way, because it's a credit builder loan, you're not actually getting the money, right? You don't get the money. They they present it as like forced savings where at the end of the time, they release the funds to you as you pay it back. But like, it's not even a loan. It's, I mean, you, you're not getting the funds from them as you're getting it. And so like there are, I mean, it's like a Russian nesting doll of terrible product design choices, <laughs> just layered one on top of the other, on top of the other. And, you know, I mean, we, I think, have been critical or... Sometimes questioning of other neobanks and their products in other areas, right? So, like, you look at like Chime or Varo, and you know, I think you and I both have our critiques of those companies and concerns about their business model and sort of what their path is to move forward and continue to grow and to generate profitability. But you know, you look at like the credit builder card products that they offer, and again, I've been critical of those products and some of the sort of implications of how they're designed. However, they're incredibly consumer-friendly products, right? Mm-hmm. They really are. Like they're incredibly low cost. They're incredibly safe to use. They're effective in helping people build their credit scores. They're really consumer-friendly products. This is not, this is. This doesn't belong in the same universe of conversations as those products because it's just, again, it's it's a number of different bad design choices layered on top of each other with, to your point about being somewhat cynical, some very clear, Choices that were made that seem designed more to limit their legal liability than to actually create value for customers.
1: I agree with that. I mean the the component that I was uh, a little disappointed not to see in here was anything related to the Instacash, which is sort of the cash advance slash payday loan like product, which is separate from the membership credit building loans that we've been discussing. Nothing in the case had anything to do with that product or the tipping, quote-unquote tipping, uh, and expedited funding Don't get me started on it.
0: Don't get me started. I hate tipping.
1: We we, we won't. We we don't have enough time today. But I guess, I mean, I'm surprised that as far as I'm aware, there's been no cases out of the CFPB having to do with tipping. And this would have felt like a logical one to sort of go to. But I guess given that they had a really good fact pattern under mm-hmm. MLA and UDAP. Uh, I guess maybe they didn't feel the need to open that can of worms and uh, neither will we today.
0: Uh, should we Should we move on to our, our our second story for today? We should. Thanks for keeping me calm. I appreciate that. I was just about <laughs> to jump off the deep end, but I will not. Uh, so we'll uh, move on to our second topic, which is speaking of the CFPB, we're going to talk a little bit about their report that came out on Buy Now, Pay Later. So As listeners will probably remember, uh, a while ago, the CFPB basically put out a call for information asking for the industry to provide input and information into the research that they were going to do around the CFPB space. And the industry, all of the large buy-now-pay-later providers, all, from what I understand, uh, were very cooperative. They participated in that process very actively. They provided data. And the resulting research report was just published by uh, the CFPB. And, you know, if you haven't gotten a chance to read it, uh, you should definitely read Jason's newsletter because he writes a very good summary of what they um, sort of found. But to to kind of hop through some of the, the specifics, you know, I think in general, they definitely acknowledge some positives about Buy Now, Pay Later as a product category. And, you know, overall, I found the tone of the report to be fairly positive. So I think in general for... FinTech and for the buy now pay later space, that was probably an overall positive. They they talked about the fact that buy now pay later has this kind of close ended design where there's sort of a known total amount that you're borrowing and a a sort of end in sight in terms of the total cost that you're going to pay. They talk about the benefits of it being sort of a simple product structure and having a simple UX, uh, which you know you can contrast with credit cards that are sometimes a little tricky to figure out, like hey, how much should I pay? What's the minimum payment? So they were very sort of complimentary, I think, of that. And then also the benefits of it being sort of widely available and being a more sort of accessible credit product for the masses than credit cards sometimes are. That said, it wouldn't be a report from the CFPB if they didn't also point out some of the potential risks associated with it. So they talked about, the stacking of CF of, uh, buy now, pay later loans by consumers. So getting a loan from Klarna, a loan from Affirm, firm, loan from Afterpay, uh, maybe multiple loans from those providers and stacking them up together in a way that might sort of be somewhat uh, difficult for the consumer to keep track of or even have an ability to understand what their total sort of amount owed is. Talked about sort of the, the underwriting and kind of credit scoring component to all of buy now, pay later. So obviously it's Widely available in the industry, but it's also one that traditionally has not been furnished to the bureaus from a data perspective. And so it doesn't necessarily help you build your credit. What are some of the concerns for consumers around that? Also, as it relates to credit cards, it doesn't come with the same sort of consumer protections uh, that credit cards uh, are built in with. And so, you know, again, if consumers are using it to shop online and are thinking of it in the same terms that they think of credit cards with, that's not necessarily true. They dinged the industry, I think, a bit on consistent consumer disclosures. And then there's this sort of broader concern, which I think under Shopra's agency has been something they've looked at across the board, which is just the concern around data harvesting and sort of big tech making its way into financial services and using consumers' data in ways that are maybe inappropriate. Some concrete stats from the report, uh, they found that 15.5% of users had five or more buy-now-pay-later loans during Q4 of 2021. So that kind of goes to that sort of stacking issue. 4% had 10 or more buy-now-pay-later loans, which is, even though 4% is a relatively small number, that's still kind of shocking to me. And then they found that overall, just from a market dynamic perspective, uh, the margins that buy-now-pay-later providers are getting from merchants are starting to compress, which is something that I think we've all seen coming just based on the amount of competition in the space and the fact that merchants, I think, are getting a little smarter about it. And then charge-offs on buy-now-pay-later loans are rising. And again, that's something we've seen some burblings of based on some data that's been shared. But the CFPB report, I think, makes it pretty clear that that's trending in a somewhat concerning direction. And as the sort of overall macro environment maybe worsens a bit, that's something that seems likely to uh, continue. So Jason, uh, I know you read the report with a fine-tooth comb and obviously did a great summary of it. What were some of your big takeaways?
1: A lot of the sort of major business publication coverage positioned this as like consumer regulator eminently regulating BNPL. And that isn't exactly... What, what my takeaway here was. I mean I, I do think that this market monitoring exercise potentially does lay the groundwork for either interpretive guidance you know and or rulemaking mm-hmm. um, so, so I, I do think that that is probably the direction things are going. but you know to the points you made in your summary and analysis, it's not like the tone was, you know overwhelmingly, Negative, right? This isn't the kind of language we've seen around things like quote unquote junk fees, you know, which have taken aim at everything from overdrafts and NSFs to more recently credit card late fees. Like that is a very those topics are sort of it's very clear where the Chopra CFPB stands on those topics. Here it was like, okay, you know, there are some positives around the structure of the product versus typical revolving credit cards. It's available. It's something that, you know, perhaps is a good sort of on-ramp into the credit and banking system for younger consumers or thin no-file consumers. So they acknowledged the positives and then pointed out like, hey, these are the areas we're concerned about, some of which the MPL providers uh, and together with the credit bureaus are already working on. So that would be specifically the furnishing of Data from BNPL providers to the bureaus, which then will help potentially help address some of these other issues around stacking, you you know, using a bunch of BNPL plans at the same time, sustained use, underwriting ability to pay, and so forth. So I think you know I interpret this more as like this is a roadmap of for the BNPLs that want to be on the right side or the safer side Mm -hmm. of the regulatory apparatus. Here's a roadmap of things that you can do. To sort of start getting there, you know, so I, I don't view this as like an overwhelmingly critical or negative critique of the product category or of the industry. I think for me, you know, some of the more interesting things, uh, and you cited some of these stats. You know, prior to this report, you know, really our main source of visibility into what was happening in this product segment was limited to companies that offer it that are publicly traded and file disclosures, or you know the European companies that, that tend to have stronger disclosure requirements, even if they're private. So right. for me, the, the, some of the components that were the most interesting were the specific uh, stats around margin compression, which is driven not only from the merchant side that you mentioned in competition, but also as these companies continue to try to grow market share, increasingly, they're doing that by offering BNPL financing outside of merchants that they contract with. So that right. is through things like the browser extensions, which I always find like kind of funny. I installed the Klarna one just to kind of like see how it works, as well as some of these uh, either virtual or physical cards. So Klarna is doing one in the US. A firm has been planning one, which is still not yet live, I think, called a firm plus or a firm debit plus. So these there is no agreement with a merchant that lets the the user use BMPL at any merchant, but it also means the revenue that the provider is getting is just a standard interchange. It's not any sort of elevated rate based on a contract with a merchant. So I think there were some very interesting details about how the dynamics in this in the sector are evolving. But, but my read on it was not, you know, overwhelmingly like CFPB is going to come and, you know, regulate this, this product out of existence. I, I really don't think that's the case at all.
0: Overall, I mean, this probably isn't how the uh, Bureau would put it, but like it seemed much like an endorsement of the product category and then concerns about how that category evolves over time. Right. To your point, I mean, they definitely pointed out. Areas around, and we see this like from regulators in Europe too, right? Like concerns about affordability, concerns about how you're doing underwriting, how you're going to present prevent consumers from sort of taking on more debt than they can afford. I think that the credit bureau, credit reporting one, which I've written about in my newsletter in the past, that's a really interesting area because Mm -hmm. I I think from both a, a sort of consumer advocate perspective as well as just from the the CFPB's perspective, I honestly don't know if buy now, pay later providers uh, furnishing data to the bureaus is going to be a net positive for consumers or not. Like I really, (laughs) I can't tell if it's going to be positive or negative. I think in general, it's probably a good thing for lenders and for the ecosystem to have access to that data and be able to factor it into their underwriting, but like not totally sure it's going to be a net positive for consumers But I think those are the sort of like areas that the Bureau is looking at is this category exists. It should exist. It's largely a positive for consumers. But as it evolves, we want to make sure that we're sort of providing, as you said, some guidance, uh, kind of a roadmap for where we'd like to see it move directionally and, you know, highlighting areas where if you get on the wrong side of this, that may end up putting you in regulatory crosshairs down the road.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, one one last comment on this one, which, you know, it's it's there's historical precedence around the creation of, if not inside the Bureau, sort of other databases to enforce rules about product usage. You know, people who have had the luxury of working in uh, the short-term lending space, certain states have a database called Veritech that is used to enforce rules around. Payday borrowing. So if there's a state law that says you can only have one loan at a time, every lender is required to report into that database, you know, if somebody has used a loan and when they pay off that loan in order to ensure compliance with the state law. So it's not like there's no example of creating something to track a sort of novel. Loan category that isn't a credit card and is not a long term installment loan. So, I mean, I'm confident they're very smart people at the bureaus. They're very smart people at these companies. I'm confident they will figure out the right way to incorporate this data. To your point, the outcome is not necessarily this is going to make your credit score go up. That's not even the right frame in my mind. That is often, that is sometimes how you hear some legislators or consumer advocates talk about it. But in my mind, that's not the that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be having potential creditors have accurate data to understand, can this consumer afford or can this consumer not afford the credit that he or she is is trying to take on? And that is a good thing for consumers because it should help protect them from becoming overly indebted. And it, it should be a good thing for lenders by helping them manage their credit risk and default rates better. Like The goal should not be make everyone have an 800 FICO score.
0: <laughs> right. I right. mean, by definition, the, the FICO score is designed to be a bit of a bell curve, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like it's supposed to be a distribution of risk. Not everyone can have an 800 FICO mm-hmm. score. So I think to your point, it's a great way of thinking about it that like one of the big concerns I have about buy now, pay later, and it seems like it's reflected in the CFPB's report as well as it's just kind of a black hole right now in terms of what consumers are doing in there. And we just don't, we really don't know much. And this, this report was one of the first ones to at least report out some data on performance on margin compression on some of those things. But to your point, a lot of these companies are still private or, you know, they're only reporting certain data in their quarterly earnings reports. And we just don't have a real good granular view into the performance of these products. But, um, The more of that that gets shared, the more of it that gets reported back through the bureaus, I think the better idea we're going to have of the overall risks this presents to consumers. And I I think the point you made, and then we can move on to the next one, is a really good one, which is that like this is just a different product, right? And I think that was the thing I was most encouraged by from the CFPU's report overall is that they seem to understand, like, this is not an installment loan. This is not a credit card. This is something new. And we should evaluate that new thing on its merits and talk about what its sort of distinct advantages and disadvantages are. And, you know, on the whole, I think the Bureau did that pretty well. Should we move on? Yeah, let's do the next one. Uh, we'll we'll hit the next two fairly quickly, and then we'll end as we always do with a couple can't let it go topics. Really quickly, there was some reporting that happened a little while ago from CNBC and Bloomberg that basically talked about rising subprime losses for Goldman Sachs uh, card program. So I think they reported that losses on the program had gotten up to almost 3% and that the share of its card portfolio that is sub 660 FICO score, which puts it in that sort of subprime category is over a quarter of the entire portfolio, over 25%. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I know, Jason, you have a ton of thoughts on Goldman Sachs. So, um, you know, try to try to keep your thoughts yeah, contained just yeah. a couple of points because we don't have a ton of time. But if anyone's interested in digging in more, definitely read Jason's mm-hmm. newsletter because he talks about this stuff pretty consistently. The thing I'm sort of struck by with Goldman is they started with Apple Card, which obviously is the one that's sort of generating these losses initially there's some reporting that they now have uh signed a deal perhaps with T-Mobile to offer a, a co-branded credit card T-Mobile obviously isn't exactly a super prime uh, set of consumers i think most of their uh, consumers actually skew uh somewhat subprime and so it's interesting to me just from Goldman Sachs perspective i would have always assumed they would have stayed more towards the prime or super prime end of the market but mm-hmm. as you know very well competing in the co-brand space, you kind of have to just go after the partners that you can get. And I definitely get the feel from Goldman that more than pursuing a very deliberate strategy, they're just kind of lurching from one potential partnership or avenue of growth to another and kind of eating the consequences of those decisions as they come. What's your reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. So the as
1: far as uh, the loss rate, being almost three uh, percent, and that is primarily driven by Apple Card. Um, you know, Goldman right. acquired the GM co-brand portfolio from Cap One, uh, but it's quite small. I think it's like two billion out of the like I don't know twelve or so billion in credit card receivables Goldman has outstanding. The argument that Goldman makes, and, and from talking with people who are smarter than I am, this I think you know holds some water is that. Uh, it's a young portfolio. So, I mean, the Apple card is, I think, like three years old. And so, card programs, when they're just getting started, have yet to quote unquote season, meaning if you look at the average tenure of a cardholder, by definition, it can only be as long as the program has been in existence. So, if you look at a more steady state card issuer, they've sort of cycled through. The bad customers who are you know going to default and charge off, and they have a larger pool of good customers that they have a long track record on. So that's sort of Goldman's response to this this stat, which I think came out of their 10Q uh, filing. That you know the charge offs are high, you know subprime like, you know they're basically saying yeah it's because we're like this is a new program give it time and that number is going to come down, which seems generally reasonable. The part that is a little bit more surprising is in the card program. You know, something like twenty five percent of the portfolio is sub six hundred and sixty. If you compare that to Goldman's own Marcus installment loan, only five percent of that portfolio is sub six hundred and sixty. And my understanding is that this is basically driven by agreements. Well, the agreement with Apple in the current case, of, as far as what that credit box looks like. So uh, you and I both know that there's plenty of money to be made doing sub subprime, <laughs> subprime credit cards. The yeah. reason it sort of turns into a news story is it's like, oh my gosh, you know, Goldman, you know, White Shoe Investment Bank is, you know, slumming it, doing subprime credit cards. It does make a good headline. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're not making money on the cards. The T-Mobile thing, I saw that headline and it just like, it kind of felt weird. You know, Apple completely makes sense from this sort of like, brand PR perspective like Goldman is you know building a platform business, we're innovating, we partner with Apple. The GM thing also frankly to me felt weird of like okay, what's the strategy here? And then now you have T-Mobile. T-Mobile apparently is the second largest mobile phone company in the US after it uh, merged with Sprint. Uh, but it does skew subprime, which was an intentional strategy on T-Mobile's part. Uh, And I looked at their 10Q filings and something like 38% of their outstanding receivables are from subscribers that their own model, T-Mobile's model says are subprime. So, okay, you have, you know, almost 90 million people. That doesn't guarantee that a co-brand card is going to be successful. You know, there are other examples of sort of mass market products. Uber is my favorite, which had a co-brand with Barclays, just because you have a large base of people to market to does not mean it's going to be successful. You know, there needs to be sort of a a program design, rewards design that motivate people to sign up for it. Uber did not seem to do that successfully with Barclays. Apple, Apple had a huge built-in base of mega fans eager to sign up for everything. So yeah, I mean, to try to answer your specific question, I'm still not really clear what the strategy here is other than like, try to get any co-brand partner that's willing to have them.
0: I think you make a really good observation that like the problem in co-brand or partnership-based programs is you're sort of somewhat damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? So the damned if you do is, well, um, if you design a really good program... That drives a lot of usage and consumers adopt it. Well, then the merchant is going to want to have the credit box be as wide as possible because they want all of their consumers to participate in it so that it strengthens their core business. But then that creates a potential sort of underwriting loss mitigation problem for the lender. If you're damned if you don't, that's the Uber problem, which is, well, we signed up this big merchant, we did all the integrations, we built the platform, we got the program in place, but they never really cared about pushing it into the market. And you know we're safe from a credit perspective, but we've never really cranked the growth at all. And we're not seeing any receivables or any transactions. And so it is this really strange business where You have to sort of end up in that Goldilocks zone where you're really active, you've created a good program, it's driving a lot of growth, but you're also aligned with the merchant so that you're not driving too much bad consumer activity through the program and driving losses to a point where it comes back on you. So striking that balance as a lender directly is hard enough. And to your point, you have to go through seasoning, you have to sort of learn the business over time. Doing that going through co-branded partners is an order of magnitude more difficult. Mm-hmm. So
1: Walmart is preparing to launch its quote-unquote checking account. Now, people who have been following this story closely know that this isn't exactly new news. Walmart uh, launched a sort of fintech venture that is majority owned by Walmart, but like it's kind of a separate thing. Uh, It was briefly called Hazel. And actually, Ribbit Capital is also a minority investor shareholder in that project. That entity acquired uh, a neobank called One or One Finance, uh, which partners with Coastal Community on a sort of like classic debit card neobank product. Uh, It also acquired the earned wage access platform, Even, uh, I believe is Even Responsible Finance. There's more than one company called Even. And some of the narrative I've seen in the press is like, you know, Wall Street, watch out, like Walmart's coming to banking. I'm kind of curious, you know, Alex, your point of view, is this actually a threat to establishment banks? You're, you know, your sort of chase and Wells Fargos of the world. I mean, what is what is Walmart's strategy here?
0: Walmart's been in this space for a long time, right? They've they've tried to get a bank charter in the past. They um have offered a variety of different financial services products. Uh they tried to spearhead uh MCX, the merchant (laughs) exchange, which was a an epic failure, the likes of which you really don't see that often in any industry. And, you know, I mean, whenever Walmart gets involved in these things, the sort of mainstream press story is a combination of two things. One, Walmart has incredible reach and scale, as we know. So the sort of disruptive potential of Walmart is is very large, uh, similar to an Amazon or Apple or whoever else. And then also, and this is what drove them to do the merchant customer exchange and um, sort of try to circumvent the card networks, Walmart has always had a particularly sort of adversarial relationship with banks and with the card networks in particular, because they're a fairly low margin business at massive scale and they they really don't like paying credit card fees. They like to have more control mm-hmm. over their sort of financial services destiny. So those are the sort of pillars upon which this Walmart is going to totally disrupt banking thesis continues to sort of rest on. And I do think the acquisitions they've made, the fact that Rivet Capital has invested and sort of partnered with them, obviously all of the hires that they've made, including some of your old friends from Goldman. The fact that they're doing all of that tells me this is a fairly well-organized attempt. But I think, to your point, it's an attempt that we should look at as the latest in a long series of attempts by Walmart. And reading too much into, oh, my God, this is going to be a hugely disruptive thing that's going to totally shake up the entire market, probably not, right? Like, Walmart is still primarily a retailer and that's their core business. And they're never going to invest that much outside of that core business. And, you know, to your point about, is it going to disrupt the chases and bank of America's of the world? Again, probably not because even if, you know, one by Walmart is incredibly successful, it's not going to be targeted at the same set of customers, right? Like to me, Mm -hmm. this is much more a competitive threat for the chimes of the world, the Varos of the world, the money lions of the world. I mean, like that segment of consumers also tends to be very uh, much a segment that chops at Walmart and that they have very strong relationships with. So I do think they can make some inroads there. I do think they can shake up certain parts of that market. But yeah, this sort of hysteria that burbles up anytime there's any reporting at all about, oh, Walmart might be getting ready to do this or they just hired this person over here. I, I think it gets a little out of proportion relative to the actual disruptive threat.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Walmart brings some very interesting assets to this. Um, specifically, obviously, uh, its physical footprint, which I think is like 5,000 ish stores in the United States. You know, it has a history of serving as a distribution point for Green Dot, uh, as well as Bluebird, which at some point was like an Amex prepaid card. It also has its Walmart Plus. Uh, which is its uh, Amazon Prime-like subscription. If you look at One's website today, I think it already messages you know cash back when you use your debit card at Walmart. So you can see some of the pieces here. But I mean, I think you know based on what we know now, I think your analysis is probably right that you know it's not competing with a person who's using their Chase Sapphire Reserve or their Amex at Walmart is competing for the person who's using their Green Dot, their Chime, their Vero card at Walmart. And in that sense, I think it could be successful at capturing that customer. Now, does this become a meaningful line item to Walmart? Historically, their financial services plays haven't really been about generating revenue in and of themselves, but rather you know, letting a consumer cash a check so they can go spend the money in the store. Or... You know, allowing a user to do remittance from the US to Mexico, where the person picking up that money will probably spend money in the store. So it's more of a corollary flywheel type thing and not necessarily intended to be a standalone, hugely profitable business. I'm skeptical that you know this is going to be any different. It might work as get people to spend more money in Walmart, but the actual business unit at this point, with the examples we have, the monzos and chimes and veros i struggle to see how it's going to be a significant line item in the behemoth that is walmart i guess we can you know leave it there if you want to tell me what you can't let go of this month
0: yeah yeah uh let's end with the can't let goes uh for me it's um crypto as almost always is the case um and in particular I was sort of casting about for the right one for our podcast today, and it was just announced this morning that um, the SEC has leveled a fine of about $1.3 million uh, against Kim Kardashian for uh, an advertisement that she did for a cryptocurrency. I believe she did it on Instagram. Uh, The cryptocurrency she was promoting was Ethereum Max which is just as shitty a shitcoin as you might imagine based on that name. And, you know, it's pretty interesting. Uh, She was paid $250,000 for this one post to promote it, uh, which is obviously a lot of money. Although for Kim Kardashian and given the number of different options she has for brand partners, it seems a little weird that she would do it for $250,000. And certainly paying a $1.3 million fine sort of washes out that. And it's, it's really interesting. I, I went back and looked up the actual ad. And I'm just going to read the ad because I, I can't not. Uh, it says, are you guys into crypto? Four exclamation points. And then it says, <laughs> this is not financial advice, but sharing what my friends just told me about the Ethereum max token. A few minutes ago, Ethereum Max burned 400 trillion tokens, (laughs) literally 50% of their admin wallet, giving back to the entire Emacs community, and then a whole set of hashtags at the bottom encouraging people to um, join the Emacs community. and. I got to say, I mean, obviously the CFPB, I think, or I'm sorry, the SEC had a pretty strong uh, case as to maybe this not being a good uh, piece of investment advice that she was providing, even though she said it was not financial advice. But the thing that jumps out to me more than anything is a few minutes ago, Ethereum Max burned 400 trillion tokens. There is absolutely no way that her many followers, have any idea what that means or why it's significant. And I'm just continually blown away by, in crypto, the worst parts of that ecosystem, basically taking sort of technical jargon or complexity, like what does burning tokens mean? Is 400 trillion a lot? It seems like a lot. Taking that sort of complexity and packaging it into a way that sounds compelling and intriguing and like a good opportunity for consumers when In fact, that doesn't mean anything and is in no way evidence of this being a good investment. And it just, I don't know, strikes me as yet another example of sort of that core challenge with this ecosystem, which is when you assume that numbers always go up and to the right and that I don't understand this market, but there are lots of other smart people who seem to know what this jargon means that can make for a very dangerous combination. And I'm glad, honestly, that the SEC, even though it's been a while since Ethereum Max sort of burned itself out, is at least getting in here and saying, no, this type of behavior is unacceptable.
1: (laughs) With that, my uh, can't let it go. There was a very great episode of the New York Times Daily Podcast recently about pandemic era fraud. In that episode, it mentioned how widespread and brazen various schemes were uh, that one individual in California actually made a rap video about defrauding the EDD, which is like the California uh, department that handles unemployment, including in the video, like flashing envelopes of the prepaid cards that he received in the mail, which is how Uh California disperses unemployment benefits. So, I mean, if you have an extra like three or so minutes, uh, I think if you search for uh, EDD rap video on YouTube, you'll probably find it. And uh, it, it definitely, I don't know, gave me a, a, a chuckle that it was that easy and people were that unafraid of being caught that there is a rap video about uh,
0: unemployment fraud. Well, it's still up on YouTube. Oh, yeah. No, I watched it like last week. <laughs> that is that is absolutely wild Um, okay well we will leave it there Um, Jason thank you so much as always and uh, thank you to all of our listeners we will be back for a special money 2020 edition of fintech recap Um, and until then thank you sir Yes, can't wait see you at money 2020 thanks for listening to this episode of fintech takes if you want to hear even more insights into the past present and future of fintech be sure to check out The Fintech Factor, the podcast series where I try to figure out how fintech companies can build sustainable differentiation in this golden age of fintech infrastructure.